beginning at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would strengthen our bodies to endure the time that it will take to open up Your Word. We ask that You would strengthen our minds to comprehend the truths that are revealed here. We pray that You would give Your Holy Spirit and Your power to our hearts to receive with gladness what's being said. And and Lord, we ask, as always, that this Word would go forth not merely as the Word of a preacher or a man, but that it would be declared effectually by the Holy Spirit, uh, written upon our hearts and our minds so that we are caused to live differently because we've heard Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By way of introduction, I want you to try to put yourself in a very real situation and imagine what you would do if this happened to you. Imagine that you and your spouse or your family or maybe you by yourself have uh, made a 15-year plan involving the purchase of land and building a home. And in, in that process, you would go ahead and you buy the land. And over the first 10 years, you uh, tighten down your budget and you pay off that land so that at the end of 10 years, it is yours outright. You own the deed to that land. And then, according to your plan, you use your deed to that land as collateral to then return to the bank and get a construction loan so that you can now build your dream home on this land that you own. The bank agrees to use that land and you begin that construction. And after nearly a year, your home is completed. And so you have your own land that has been used as collateral to the bank to then get a construction loan to build this home. The home has been completed. Obviously, in all this time, you've you've been a little bit busy with the hustle and bustle of adding the final touches to new construction, getting your home ready to live in. Over the past few months, you, you finally begin to get settled down. Construction is completed, and you get a letter in the mail that says, you've defaulted on your mortgage payments, and not only are we now going to take your home, but we're coming to take the land that you use for collateral for your home, and you've got 90 days to be out of your home. Now imagine what you would do in that situation. I think there are essentially two options. You just sort of um, nonchalantly look up over that piece of mail and yell across the house, Babe, don't throw out all of those boxes that we used to move in. We're going to need some of them. We've got to be out in 90 days. And you go on to read the rest of the mail. Or you immediately begin to make phone calls to the bank. 
You check your bank statements and your mortgage statements and you scour that pile of junk mail that's on your countertop to see if maybe they had sent some delinquency notices that you just overlooked. I'm going to guess that most of us would not sit idly by and just watch our life savings be taken away, be stripped away. I'm going to assume that we would all be immediately urgently working to verify and to prove that what is ours is actually ours. You would be ready to make every phone call. You would wait for however long it takes in every, every on-hold call. You would be ready to drive to every office meeting, to print, to fill out, to scan, to resend every document necessary to prove that the land that rightfully belongs to you rightfully belongs to you. You would want to do everything you could as quickly as possible to prove beyond all doubt that this was actually your property to anybody who would argue differently. Now in light of that scenario, consider the the words of Thomas Watson. If there were a controversy about your land, you would use all means to clear your title. And is salvation nothing? You would do whatever it takes to prove that your land is your land. And would you not do the same thing for the salvation of your never dying soul? Now what does he mean by that? What does it mean to use his, to use his language? What does it mean to clear the title of your salvation? Does the Bible not teach that once we've walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and made a decision passed through the waters of baptism, joined the church, taken the Lord's Supper, that we should have no further concern about our salvation, that it's, that it's as good as done at that point? Do we not, after that singular moment in time act of what we call being saved, do we not put to rest all such concerns and just sit and wait for heaven? Now we've, we've got our ticket, now we just wait until the, the bus arrives. Are we not so secure in Christ that to even speak of the idea of, quote, clearing the title for your salvation is really just a sign of your own lack of faith and distrust in His finished work? What could Watson possibly mean by that phrase, clearing the title of your salvation? Well, what he means is that you would treat your salvation, or you ought to treat your salvation, like you would treat that piece of stolen land. You... We ought to be doing everything in our power to verify and to prove that this salvation that we believe is ours is actually ours. Watson has simply, in his own illustrative way, restated the command of Peter in verse 10 of this chapter. Look at it. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. The King James renders it, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now most of us have read those verses, probably even quoted those verses, and usually when we we take those verses in our mouths, we're using them to defend the doctrine of sovereign election. See, God elects. See right there? Make your calling and election sure. That's a Bible truth. That's a Bible word. And yet if we were to be asked, if somebody came up to us and said, what does it mean to make your calling and election sure? Could you tell me, as a believer, could you tell me how to do that? How do I make my calling and election sure? 
Now, maybe you've thought about this in the past. Maybe you've wrestled with this passage. Maybe you've wrestled with your own assurance. And so you come to a passage like this and you say, well, it's not terribly odd to wrestle with assurance. Peter actually commands to confirm our calling and election. So it's something that we have to do. And maybe you think that what it means here, if somebody says, what do you do to confirm your calling and election? Maybe you've thought, well, what that means is, I get real quiet by myself, shut the door, and I, I, think, I think in my mind, I squint my eyes tightly, and I talk to myself, and I say, do you feel saved? And you just wait to see what the answer might be from the other the response of your own soul. Or maybe you sit and you think, you speak to yourself, are you certain that you have been called and elected by God? And then you wait for yourself to respond. I am certain. Maybe that's what you think that this means. Or maybe you ask yourself questions like this. Do I remember the time and the place where God saved me? Did I write the date down in the back of my Bible? And can I flip to it and find it and see right there it says it. I, I did this on this date and therefore I have confirmed my calling and election. Or do you ask yourself, wasn't there a great and immediate change that was wrought in my daily habits back at a certain point in time. That's how I know that I've been called and elected. Or maybe you might think that to confirm your calling and election means you sit and ask yourself, am, am I trusting in Christ and Christ alone to save me? And then you wait for that response deep down in your soul. And your soul says, what do you mean by trust? Is what you mean by trust, what the Bible means by trust? Is your faith what God calls faith? And you begin this circle, eventually trying to confirm your calling and election, which are works wrought by God, by your ability to exercise the right kind of faith. What does it actually mean to confirm your calling and election? What does it mean to make your calling and election sure? How do you do it? Notice that text again, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So the word begins with a therefore. Keep that in mind. It has a little for in it. And it concludes with a reference to these qualities. In other words, therefore, or in light of what's already been said, confirm your calling and election for if you, and he doesn't say, for if you confirm your calling and election. He says, for if you practice these qualities, the sense of the verse is that the means by which you confirm your calling and election, or make your calling and election sure, is by practicing these qualities. He also says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. A form of that word diligent has already been used back in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Make every effort. Compare that to verse 10. Be all the more diligent. And what follows in verse 5 is a list of qualities. Through verse 7. And then in verse 8, he says, For if these qualities are yours. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities. Verse 10, if you practice these qualities. You see a little bit of, of Peter's train of thought. Do all of these things. And if you do them, and if you don't do them, therefore do them. And by doing them, you're confirming your calling and election. So confirming your calling and election is not sitting and asking yourself, do I feel saved? And waiting for the response, yes, you feel saved today. 
Because you, you, you know as well as I do, there are some days you wake up or maybe you're halfway through the day and you think, I, my answer would have to be, no, I don't feel saved right now. It's not, do you remember the time and the place? It's not, did I write down the date? It's not, not, do you remember that great, that pressure of being forced through the womb of the Holy Spirit when you were being born again? And you felt it, and you came out born. No, you don't remember that. That won't work. It's not even, am I believing or trusting in Christ enough? Because that's not what saves us. It's none of these, any more than verifying the vitality of a tree by asking if it feels alive. You don't walk up to a tree and say, hey, do you feel alive today? No, you just say, does it have leaves on it? Does it have fruit growing from it? You look for evidence of life. The way that a Christian confirms or makes sure they're calling an election is by making every effort and being diligent to practice what Peter calls these qualities. Think of it this way. What is election? It's God's choosing of certain men unto salvation before the foundation of the world. That doesn't have anything to do with you. God did that, not you. So how how could we know if God's chosen us in eternity? How can you confirm your election? Ask God, God, did you elect me? And then turn to His Word to see if your name's in there. That won't work. Because there's nowhere in Scripture where it says, God chose Paul White unto salvation. It doesn't say that. We confirm our election by confirming our calling. In other words, therefore, he says, be diligent to confirm your calling and thus your election. We, we confirm our calling because those whom God chose in eternity, He calls to life and salvation in time, Romans 8.30. Those whom He predestined, He also called. There's no predestination, no election apart from calling in time. What is effectual calling? The picture we've given in Scripture is like Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. It's the effectual call of the sovereign God, which, among other things, brings us from life to death. The call does the resurrecting. So if you want to confirm your election, you simply confirm your calling. And if you want to confirm your calling, you simply confirm that you are alive. If you're alive spiritually, you've been called from life or to life from the dead. And what does a living being do? A living being grows. A living being changes. A living being advances. A living being matures. There's activity. There's movement. These are all signs of life. Nobody needed to go up to Lazarus and say, Lazarus, were you called to life? Because his answer would have been like the clerk at Walmart. (laughs) The fact that he's walking out of the tomb is evidence. He has been called to life. That's evidence enough. He's showing signs of life. And so when Peter commands the saints to make every effort to confirm their calling and election, that is synonymous with practice these qualities. He's saying, in effect, manifest the signs of life. You'll see that you've been called. And seeing that you've been called, you'll know that God chose in eternity that He would save you. He says, make every effort. He says, be diligent. He says, practice and increase. Now, this is not a question of justification or of reconciliation with God. It's not a matter of earning your salvation. The matter in question here is now that you have been justified, that you have become partakers of the divine nature through the knowledge of God, verses 3 and 4, for that very reason, because you are a Christian, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And what's going to be the outcome of all of that? What, what's going to happen to the saints who are diligent to confirm their election? Look at the end of verse 10. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're practicing these qualities, in this life your soul will be safe and secure and you will find a safe passage into the heavenly kingdom by practicing these qualities. Not earning your standing before God. So by doing what the apostle commands here, we accomplish several things. We confirm our calling by giving evidences of spiritual life. There's always, uh, there has been historically and still, and there will always be this discussion and wondering in the life of every believer, some more than others, uh, about assurance of faith and salvation. And, and people wrestle with that to, to different ends of, and different degrees on a spectrum. Some struggle with it a lot more than others. Here, you can find confidence, not by asking God, did you elect me? But by asking, do I see spiritual life? By confirming our calling, we verify our election in eternity. And what greater consolation to the soul is there than to know that God in eternity set His affections upon you by name and said, that one is mine. I'm going to find them one of these days when they're walking dead in trespasses and sins and I'm going to bring them to life. He determined to do that. That's, that's, that's a great comfort to the soul. By practicing these qualities, we, we secure the safety of our souls in this life from falling into grievous sins and we secure our safe passage into heaven. I say all that to say it seems like it would be a really good idea to practice these qualities. So what are these qualities? What are the things that we're commanded to do? Or to, to shorten all that up, what exactly is the process outlined by the Apostle Peter to confirm your calling and election? Or to be more succinct, how can I know that I'm saved beginning right now and coming up this next week? First, there is a procedure. A procedure, the, the way or manner in which these qualities are to be manifested. He says, in, but now we're back to verse 5, make every effort to supplement. That, that's again synonymous with being diligent. It means to labor, put forth effort, put forth the necessary exertion to accomplish the task. Peter does not say, whoa, 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 assurance, whoa, easy, rest, relax, don't think about stuff like that. No, he says work, labor, get after it. He is not suggesting that we get on this lazy river ride to glory. He's saying, no, you get to work. Your, your title might be in question. You better confirm it. Make sure it's yours. If you're going to make your calling and election sure, if you're going to do all in your power to clear the title of your own salvation, to make certain proof of your possession of it, then you will have to put forth effort. The Christian life is a battle. It's warfare. It's pressing into the kingdom. He says, make every effort to supplement and a lot of times we use the word supplement as simply add or even to put in the place of. And, and to, 
to use an illustration, we might take a dietary supplement. I'm going to take these two capsules instead of eating 17 oranges to replace. But that's not the picture here. It does come across like a list, but the, the meaning of the apostle here is not to simply stack these things on top of each other like you're building a tower or even to pour in a lot of ingredients to produce a dish. The word supplement is used elsewhere. It's translated give or supply or furnish. One dictionary describes it this way. It means to develop one quality in the exercise of another. Each new grace springing out of and perfecting the other. In Colossians 1.19, this word is used for the growth of a human body. Now, if you think about your body, your various body parts were not somewhere else. And God said, I'm going to take an arm and, and a leg and, and stick them onto something to make your body. They are the constituent elements that make up your body. They, they came out of the same growth from the very beginning. They are themselves the outgrowth and maturation of the body itself. And so these graces are not manufactured somewhere else and then added to the former in, in a line. They are themselves the outgrowth and maturation of each previous grace. That's the procedure that he's outlining here. Develop one quality by exercising the next quality. And develop that quality by exercising the next quality. That's the procedure. Now notice then these qualities of spiritual life. First, there's faith. Notice he doesn't say supplement anything with faith. He simply assumes their faith from the beginning. He's writing to churches. He's writing to people who profess to be Christians. He's already assumed their faith in verse 1 to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. He assumes that they're Christians. Faith is often referred to, and I call it this, the chief of the graces. Faith is that grace that, by which we look out of ourselves to God in Christ for salvation and, and for all of life, spiritual life. We are first justified by the grace of God through the instrumentality of our faith. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, it doesn't stop there, now we live every day walking in that same faith. Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Faith is the very substance of the yet-to-be-seen age to come in the soul of the saints. Faith is the seed of hoped-for heaven already planted and growing in the heart. A lost man says, well, I'm not sure I believe in heaven. The Christian says, I've already got it. To me, it's not a matter of just believing. I have the substance of it in me. By faith, we look to God. We take hold of Christ and we cling to all the promises of God. And remember, Peter is assuming that his audience is a church or churches of believers, of the faithful. In verse 3, he assumes that they have a saving knowledge of God. In verse 4, he assumes they've already taken hold of the promises spiritual life and salvation. He assumes they become partakers of the divine nature through the indwelling spirit, that they've fled the corruptions of the world. So he doesn't say supplement something with faith. He just assumes the faith from the outset. You see this very often in the New Testament. Whenever there's faith that is professed or assumed, 
the author admonishes the professors of faith based on their profession and he spurs them on to prove that profession all the more. He doesn't let them sit with just a mere profession. I don't know of any place in the New Testament where we read something like this. To the church in such and such a city, you say you're all Christians, but you're not, and I don't believe it. Grace and peace be unto you. Now he assumes you're in a church, you say you're of the faith, and this time there weren't a whole lot of, of people who would just mosey into a church for no reason. He assumes their faith, and the angle here is that those who profess Christ can and will be motivated to live in a way that aligns with that profession. That's what's happening here. He assumes faith. He takes for granted that bedrock grace and then he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. The word virtue means moral excellence or excellence of character. Your character is the collaboration of traits which make you the distinct person that you are. That's your character. Now, to excel means to go beyond, to go above, to advance. It never means to go backward. It's always forward. It's always upward. It's always better. That's to excel. So moral excellence would be to have an excellence of character that excels. It's always going up and beyond and increasing. Beyond what is normal, beyond what is average, it never settles Now this, of course, is not to be rooted in a humanistic or atheistic definition of character. This is the character which is rooted in mankind as the very image and likeness of God. This would be character rooted in conformity to God's law. This is why virtue is also defined as moral excellence because it's rooted in, it is a character that conforms to the moral law of God. So virtue here is the character of a person who lives in obedience to the commands of God, which as we know, the law of God is a revelation of God's own character. So what does it look like to have virtue? Well, we don't need to look any further than God incarnate. Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good. That's what Jesus did. That's what God incarnate looks like on the earth. He went about doing good. What does virtue look like? What is moral excellence? Christ going about doing good. He was of a personal character that came out in doing good. He went about doing good. If you said, hey, what's Jesus doing today? Well, I think He's over there doing some good. That's what He did every day. He did good. Now, here's the thing. We have this fear of being told, do good. You might be sitting there thinking, is the, is the pastor telling us to be good? Are you saying that we should go about doing good? Having our feet so firmly planted in the imputed righteousness of Christ and being justified by God not by doing good, but by the good doing of the man Jesus, we tend to develop this sort of revulsion in our souls to any teaching that says Be good. Be a good person. Do good things. Go about doing good. And so we ask, is Peter telling us to be good people when he says virtue? Is he saying be good people? 
No, Peter is telling us to supplement our faith with virtue. He's telling us to do the exact same thing that James tells us in James 2. When he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Can that kind of workless faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And he goes on later to say, I'll show you my faith by my works. What James is saying is, I, I supplement my faith with virtue. Here's the point. James saw it in his audience, Jews of the dispersion. Peter saw it in his audience, many of them Jews of the dispersion. And this is a temptation for all Christians. There's a temptation to rest in the internal actings of faith. And we don't move forward in making every effort to see that faith come out in good works so that we are known as people who go about doing good. So he says, supplement your faith with virtue. Then verse 6, and virtue with knowledge. That is, supplement, we might say develop, tease out that virtue with knowledge. We're not told to stack some knowledge on top of virtue, which has been stacked on top of faith, but to give growth to the grace of faith through virtue and to give growth to that virtue through knowledge. Faith should not be alone. It must always be accompanied by good works, James 2. Those good works, that virtue should never be alone. It should always be accompanied by knowledge. Now what is knowledge? Is, it, is he just saying general knowledge? Like, hey, while you're doing good, learn, learn some you know, uh, horticulture things, learn some botany, learn some things about the stars. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. This is a spiritual knowledge growing out of the diligent use of God's Word. But it's more than just information. He's not saying, and while you're doing good, make sure you get all of the information you can. He's not saying that. This is a lot closer to what we would typically call wisdom or prudence. One commentator defines it this way. It's the practical discrimination of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of good and evil. Intelligent appreciation of what is the will of God in each detail of practice. In other words, it's knowledge that is worked out in, in life. This knowledge is the use and application of biblical wisdom in each and every circumstance of life. It's knowing what to do, it's knowing when to do it, it's knowing how to do it in every situation. As Christians in the home, there will arise different situations that each require a different action. And sometimes the same action, the parallel mirror same action, it won't work in two different scenarios. It might not work the same with two different children. Sometimes the same situation on a different day requires a different approach. Oftentimes we have to determine our priorities and pick our battles and act accordingly. For example, one child at the age of two might be more mature and more obstinate than another child. And so 
discipline for that child at the age of two might be a little, a little far for another child of the same age who clearly doesn't have the maturity and the, the mental grasp of, of the order of the home and the rules and things like that. Family worship on Tuesday night at 9 p.m. might not look the same as it does on Saturday evening at 5 or 6. And I would be a fool to say it's 9 o'clock, everybody's eyes are half open, this kid's already asleep, but I've got an hour worth of notes for family worship and we're going through it whether you like it or not and I'm going to spank anybody who doesn't you know, answer all my questions properly. That would be f- foolish. As Christians in the world, the same is true. Different kinds of people require different dealings. Variations in your line of work, your boss, your schedule, and your skill might introduce a hundred variations in what it looks like to live as a Christian in your situation and then in that same situation the next day or that same situation after lunch. As Christians in the church, your spurring on of one person might need to be a sharp rebuke to somebody else. One person is less mature in their faith. They might need a little bit more attention than the older saints who don't need so much attention. A person who's stuck in their ways needs a little bit more prying than somebody who hasn't been saved long enough to really develop a a rut or a pattern in that particular area. A young church needs more instruction in ecclesiastical matters and unity. An older church will need to focus on how to disseminate years of wisdom to a new generation. In all these kinds of circumstances, there are a thousand different ways that one might act in their doing good. Some of them are simply wrong. Some of them are injudicious. Some of them are unwise. Others of them are perfectly suited. This knowledge from God the Holy Spirit's use and application of biblical wisdom is the ability to rightly analyze these kinds of situations and discern what is right and what is wrong in each one of them. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says when your mind is being transformed, what happens is you learn to be able to discern what is God's will. What is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God? What would God have you to do? Don't think like the world. Think the way God teaches you to think. The opposite of that was seen in the Jews of Romans 10. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Very zealous. Doing a lot. A lot of busyness. A lot of works. But it was divorced from God's revelation. Divorced from knowledge. They were doing good in their thinking, but without knowledge. So hopefully you can see the connection between virtue and knowledge. In all of our well-doing, all of our virtuous activity, we have to always be returning back to the wellspring of divine revelation. Always being transformed by the renewal of our minds so that in our doing good, we're doing good the way God says we should do good. If we're not supplementing our virtue with knowledge, then we'll always tend to drift towards the world's definition of what is good. The world has their definition of good. They have their definition of virtue. God has His. Our job is to do what God says is good. We see this in our, in our day in the, the social justice or the woke church movement. A lot of people who have a great desire to do something good. 
but they have adopted their methods and their definition of good from the world, not from God's Word. And what have they done? They've done more damage than good. So we have to develop or supplement our virtue with knowledge. We must be always be growing in our knowledge of the Word of God and our testing of circumstances and situations, not thinking that every situation is cookie-cutter the same in our doing good. Next is self-control and knowledge with self-control. Or again, supplement your knowledge with self-control. Knowledge must always be fortified. I want to use the word tempered, but I'm not going to use the word tempered because another synonym for self-control is temperance. Self-control, temperance, the ability to control yourself and your desires. Self-control is self-mastery. You rule over yourself. The lost man's body rules him. The Christian man's mind and soul and spirit rules his body. He has control of himself. A way to think of this negatively is not given to excess. To be temperate, to be self-controlled, means you're going to be moderate in your use of things. Now think with me. Is Peter... And Paul in Galatians 5, when he says this is the fruit of the Spirit, is Peter saying that we ought to be moderate in our use of sinful things? No, never, absolutely not, can't be. We don't moderate our use of sin. Sin must be cut off, put to death. It's dead, sever it, gouge out the eye, cut off the hand, it's got to go. So what he's saying is be self-controlled, be temperate, be moderate in our use of good things. We are not to be given to excess in good things. Now very often we Christians are going to find something and we can't really discover anything evil about it. It seems to be a good thing. It's a good food. It's a good drink. It's a good book. It's a good TV show. It's a good podcast. It's a good hobby. It's a good job. And what do we do? Inevitably, we go too far. I found a good thing. And we run with it all the way as far as we can go. We become wrapped up and consumed in in this thing or that thing. And if there's any prick in our conscience, you're going too far. You're going too far. This is what we do. We justify ourselves by saying, well, it's not sinful. If any other Christian were to bring up this near obsession, don't you think you're going a little far with this or that? You become incredibly defensive. Show me in the Bible where it says it's sinful. Well, I can't show you in the Bible that this thing is sinful. It's actually a really good thing. You're just given to excess in this good thing. The problem is that as Christians, we are not only forbidden sinful things, we are forbidden to be excessive in good things. We get to be excessive in one thing, God and Christ and His gospel and His spirit. That's where we are allowed to be excessive. Beyond their more well-known abominations, It was said of Sodom, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Is it wrong to eat? No. Is it wrong to prosper? Is it wrong to take a break once in a while, go on vacation? Absolutely not. But being excessive in those things, even in good things, is sinful, it's wicked. In the words of Thomas Brooks, he says, We should prize and value all earthly portions now 
as we value them when we come to die. So on your deathbed, think about this. On your deathbed, the doctor has said you've got maybe hours. On your deathbed, what are you going to think about that good food or drink? What are you going to think about those good books, that, those good TV shows, that good podcast, that fun hobby that was enjoyable, that good job? What are you going to think about it? You're going to say, well, it was good. doesn't really mean anything to me now. He doesn't mean that we don't use and enjoy good things, but we're to manage everything in light of eternity. Hold loose even to good things. Why? Because they're not the chief good. They're not God. On your deathbed, the only thing that's going to matter is do I have God as my portion? Not do I have all of the other good things. Hold everything that way now. Now how does that relate to knowledge? If we have to supplement our knowledge with temperance or moderation or self-control, how do they, how do they relate? Well, very often in our quest for knowledge, we, we learn how to draw hard, fast, bold, black lines. Good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, 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 good. And we, we learn all of the things that are good. And we find those good things and we go too far. We fail to understand that we are to be self-controlled even in our use of good things. Your faith cannot remain secret. It must come out in good works. But your good works have to be tempered with knowledge so that you know what is actually good in each circumstance. And that knowledge has to be tempered with moderation and bringing your body into submission even with regard to good things. The the illustration that I used last night was if somebody gave me a a bag of peanut M&M's the size of a pillowcase, how many of those does my body say, I want to eat? Well, the answer to that question is all of them. But typically what I would want to do, or my body wants to do is, you know you can't eat all of them, just start eating until I say, stop, no more, please. I said, temperance says, get out five. Zip up the bag and put it away. Well, I want more. Well, so what? You don't have to obey your wants. You're not a slave to your flesh. So what? Put it away. That's temperance. Sleep. Is sleep bad? No, it's not bad. Would it be okay to sleep all day? No. Do I want to sleep all day sometimes? Sure. So what? Get up. Be temperate, even with the good things. Then there's steadfastness. Steadfastness comes in to supplement our self-control. We we very often use the word patience as a synonym for, for steadfastness, but that might not be the best picture because usually when we think of patience, we think, I'm sitting in the waiting room at the doctor's office, and I'm just, just waiting for the time to pass. I'm, I'm trying to be patient. That's not what the word here means. This is, this is active. Steadfastness is more than simply waiting for time to pass. Steadfastness is an active enduring of the Christian life in the face of many obstacles and difficulties. In other words, it's not just waiting for the time to pass. It's using the time even when it's difficult to use that time. John Gill says it's enduring the race as a Christian... With many difficulties and exercises, affliction from the hand of God, reproaches from persecutions from men, and doing this without murmuring, without repining, without fainting, and without discouragement. When Paul's aim was to strengthen the souls of the disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith, he said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. James said, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And Paul said in Romans 5, endurance 
produces character. In other words, to bear up under trials and tribulations and hardships as a Christian in this world is to be under the chisel of the the master sculptor as he forms us into the image of Christ. Now what does self-control, or why does our self-control have to be supplemented by steadfastness and endurance? Well, when you realize that as a Christian, your job is not only to avoid evil, most of us have got that down pat. I would say to, to a large degree, we know the things that are blatantly outright evil and we're trying to eschew them. But when you realize, oh, I actually have to be temperate in good things? I can't even go too far in good things? When you realize that's what we're called to, you realize this is going to be hard. This is going, this is going to take a while. This is, this is when you start crying out, Maranatha, Lord, I don't know how long I can do this. Because our flesh is so, so pulling and tugging. You learn very quickly that long-term obedience is hard. Taking up your cross and following Christ is not denying ourselves sinful things. Denying yourself is not denying yourself your own selfish lusts and passions as the the, the gay Christian movement would teach us that to be an, an internal, mental, sodomite of the heart, well, that's just my cross to bury, I don't act, or to carry. That's, I, I don't act on it, I'm just carrying my cross. No, you're supposed to cut that off. That's not your cross. That's sin. Following Christ doesn't mean, well, I guess I'll deny myself some more sin today. That's not what it means. This means denying yourself the opportunity to be so encompassed by the good things of life that Christ Himself becomes dim in our eyes. You can't follow Him if you can't see Him very well because you've got all these other good things in front of your face. Even good things have to be held in the background so that Christ and Christ alone gets the chief of our affections and denying ourselves many good things for a long period of time is hard for most of us because we've lived in the lap of luxury and ease and prosperity our entire lives. Prosperity and rest and comforts are not bad, but the world will tell you they're ultimate. The world will tell you that if those are not your chief aim in all your endeavors, you won't make it. And in their view, from their perspective, they're correct. You won't make it. You won't make it to the American dream. You won't be able to compete with workers and businesses that lie and cheat and steal and have no problem doing it. You're not going to attain to their level. And that brings many difficulties upon the saints under which we must endure But God makes sure we always have what we need. God has not promised us a yacht or a cruise liner to take us to glory. He simply said, I'll make sure there are no holes in your boat and I'll make sure you have enough wind in your sails to get there. We have to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Then there's godliness, verse 7. Our endurance is to be supplemented with godliness. The word godliness literally means, based on the etymology of the word, good worship. Now to understand that a little better, we could ask, what what is required to produce good worship? Well, you have to know the God you're worshiping. Knowing God, you must then worship Him in a way that He's commanded. And worshiping in the way that He is commanded includes doing so from a heart of love and reverence for Him. And so godliness is very often used synonymous with the word piety. It's an internal 
reverence or fear and love for God and adoration of God internally, which then comes out externally in obedience in all areas, especially in areas or acts of worship. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines godliness as a careful observance of the laws of God and performance of religious duties proceeding from love and reverence for the divine character and commands. So it's living and worshiping the way you ought to because your heart loves to do that, because your heart loves God. That's godliness. Godliness begins in the soul, an understanding of who God is, a love for that God, a fear of that God, a willingness and a desire to do what that God commands and a delight in pleasing Him. Not, well, I guess I'll do what you say, but Lord, teach me your ways. And then godliness flows out in actions, obedience in all of life, but especially the acts of worship, regular, habitual prayer, attendance upon God's Word and the public ordinances. That's godliness. There are a lot of people who have the the appearance of godliness but deny the power. They they look outwardly, but there's no inward power so that there's no, no change in their life. But they can put on a show. Godliness is both internal and external. Now, why do we have to supplement our steadfastness with Godliness. Why would Peter teach us to develop our endurance by exercising godliness? All we have to do here is remember the saints of Ephesus. They were bearing up under much affliction. They were putting false teachers to the test. In all this, they had not wavered from the truth. They were remaining steadfast. But what was their charge? You've left your first love internally. The fight had made them cold and hard as it often does. The fight had made them calloused in their souls and they were beginning to think, well, all that matters is that we stand against the tide of doctrinal error and Christ says, that's good, but I want your heart. I want you to love me. I want a warm heart full of affections for God and for Christ and for others. And godliness is just that. It's rooted in the affections of the heart. And so we can't let our willingness to endure and our stand for truth somehow be exchanged or taken in the place of warm-hearted, affectionate devotion to and worship of God. So supplement or, or, or develop out your steadfastness with godliness. Make sure that you're not growing cold and hard and calloused in your Christianity. And then there's brotherly affection, godliness with brotherly affection. Our godliness, internal and external piety and worship of God should be developed by an ever-increasing exercise of brotherly affection. What is brotherly affection? Affection for the brothers. It's love for the saints of God. It's a special love for the people of God because they are the people of God. It's to say with David in Psalm 16.3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. If I could pick who I want to be around, it's going to be around the people of God. It's a love for all Christians. It's going to manifest itself first in those Christians that you see and interact with most often in the assembly in your local church. But it's also going to extend out to other Christians that you know elsewhere. Even those brothers and sisters around the world. You have an affection for them so that you hear the saints in Afghanistan are suffering. You don't know a name of a single one of them. I couldn't pick out Afghanistan on a map. But my heart is burdened when I hear my brothers suffering. 
It's a love for the brothers. It's a special love that flows from the camaraderie that we have in the Spirit. We have the same Lord and the same Savior. We serve the same King, the same faith, the same truth is believed. We have the same eternal hope. We're all looking forward to being at the same place at the same time. Therefore, we love the brothers. Now, why does godliness, internal and external piety, have to be supplemented with brotherly affection? Think about it. It's, it's actually pretty easy. What happens when you begin to grow and increase in your devotion to God and His Word and to things like prayer, acts of private worship? What happens when that quiet and silent time with the Lord is so personally warming and stirring and then we get around other brothers and sisters and they're not quite so stirring? They read a different passage of Scripture than you did this morning. So you come in fired up. Well, I read, you know, whatever. You got to get this. And they're thinking, oh man, I was wanting to talk about this passage. And you're excited. Yeah, this is what the Lord taught me. And they're, they're, they're saying, oh, well, that's good. Why, are you, why, why do you not love it the way I love it? Your zeal is not met with the same zeal in them. Your view of God and your passion might not be met with the same passion in them. You, maybe you come into the assembly and you're ready to exalt in God and they've been struggling all week and all they want is somebody to pray for them. Maybe you won't feel like you want to dump all that you've learned from the Lord on them and they've come with a completely different subject or topic that they wanted to dump on you. Well, this is not going to work. We can't both talk at the same time. And so what happens? We begin to distance ourselves even from the saints of the land. I feel more holy and I feel more devoted and I feel more pious if I just keep my distance. And we start thinking that the Lord is better in secret and godliness is easier when you and all you've learned and all that you've felt and experienced are against the world than it is when it's you and them. And not only are you both against the world, but you're having to bear one another's burdens. It's like carrying a brother into battle. We, we just started and I'm already carrying you. We think, I, I would do better just to fight by myself. And this has been historically proven many times. What happens to the, the quote, most holy and most pious of the Christians? They find a monastery somewhere. We've got to get away and get alone so we can focus on God without the disturbance of you lesser vessels, you lesser Christians. Peter says you better watch out. Always be supplementing that growth in godliness with an increase in brotherly affection. And notice he doesn't say, let, let love overwhelm you or, or try to fall in love with the brothers. He says, supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. In other words, you need to love the brothers more. As you feel that devotion stirring, you're growing in your love and devotion to God. Go after the brothers and love them. And the Lord teaches us in private so that we can edify others and be a benefit to the body. Our godliness is to be an asset to the church, not a distraction from the church. Sometimes we think that that means that whatever the Lord taught me in my quiet time needs to be unloaded on the first six people I see at church, hoping that somebody takes the bait and can match my joy with theirs and thus what? Affirming me in my walk with the Lord. But more often than not, as your godliness increases, it's going to mean not dumping it on others, but developing the ability to, get this, 
Ask them how they're doing. Inquire after their spiritual state. Look for some way to encourage and affirm them rather than seeking to use them to affirm you. See, brotherly affection is displayed in in self-denial, not self-promotion. How do I know that? Because the Lord Jesus showed it to us. In John 13, 1, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And what did He immediately do? He stripped Himself. He tied a towel around His waist and He washed their feet. Later on He says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down His life for His friends. So godliness has to be supplemented with brotherly affection, a selfless, tender desire for the well-being of the brethren. I want what's good for you. I'm here to be poured out for you. In my quiet time, I learned of Christ. And so here I am, not to be served, but to serve and to love the brothers. And then lastly, there's simply love. Your brotherly affection or brotherly love, Philadelphia, must be supplemented by a general love for all men, agape. This is not a special love rooted in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, but it's a love of goodwill toward all men rooted in the fact that we share a common Creator and we all bear an image and likeness to God. Christians of all people should be the most loving, the most compassionate, the most considerate people to all mankind. Matthew Henry says that when we do this, believers in Christ evidence that they are children of God who is good to all, but especially good to Israel. Our special love for the saints does not negate our general love to all men. What's the connection? In these last several ones, we've seen the same connection. It's our tendency to turn inward. We always have this tendency to turn inward. And so we, our, our godliness turns us inward. And Peter says, ah, back to the brothers. Turn back out. And we go to the brothers. And we say, oh, I love the brothers. I want to, let's, let's, let's get in here and just love the brothers. Peter says, ah, turn back outward and love everybody else as well. If we're to be concerned for the souls of men, we must love them. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says in Luke 19, when He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He looked upon the city that would soon chant for His death. He prophesies here their eventual destruction with tears in his eyes, weeping for their souls, weeping because he wanted them to be at peace with God. Should we not then, out of a general love for all mankind, look and weep at their sad condition? Well, they hate us. They don't like us. They don't want to have anything to do with us. Well, then let them see us weep for their souls. Should we not burn with a love and a desire to see men brought to peace with God through the weeping Jesus. He wept for souls that would not be with Him in eternity. Ought we not to weep? Ought we not to love all men? At the conclusion of this list, are we saying that by doing or practicing these qualities we earn our way to heaven? The answer is no. We're saying that by doing or practicing certain qualities, we confirm, we make sure, we prove to ourselves 
that our title to, the, the title to our heavenly homeland is truly ours. Because of those He calls, He glorifies. You don't leave apples gathered around the trunk of a tree in order to give it life. You go and pick the apples and eat them as evidence that that tree is already alive. And so here we make every effort to produce an increase in these qualities, these fruits, not to give us life, but to confirm that the life of God is already flowing in us. The testimony of the Scriptures is clear that we are never to act as though our salvation is such a settled matter of past concern that it may not occupy our present consideration. Consider the words of Christ in Matthew 11. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. We know that the kingdom of heaven is manifested in all of the ways that Christ our King rules and reigns in the hearts and lives of His people, not just at conversion and not just at glorification, but all through life. The people of God are taking all of that by force. It's by holy violence that all of the personal work of salvation is carried out. We never rest. We never coast. Think of these Proverbs in a spiritual light. Proverbs 13.4, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The spiritual sluggard will talk all day long about all the things he'd love to see in his heart and his life and the world, but nothing happens because he's doing nothing. He's not working. You've got to get out and work if you want to be supplied. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and he will not even bring it back to his mouth. The spiritual sluggard starts out well, And then he tires out and he gets nothing good for his soul. The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. The spiritual sluggard always has some excuse, even if it sounds very serious. Always some excuse as to why he won't do the plain, simple, ordinary actions of the Christian life. And therefore he gets nothing. The opposite of this is the one who is spiritually diligent and he is taken up with that holy violence in pursuit of the ever-expanding dominion of Christ in his soul. He knows where the the corners of the realm are, where, where Christ needs to come and conquer. And he's going after it. Come conquer. The spiritually diligent doesn't talk. They act. And their souls are richly supplied. It It shows. They don't just start, but they carry on. They're always active, making no excuse for spiritual laziness. In other words, confirm your calling election is never getting really quiet and still, saying, Lord, or or self, do I I feel called? No, it's never that. It's never stop. It's always go and act and do. A part of the diligence we're called to is what Peter describes as practicing these qualities. Your so-called faith is nothing without good works. Your good works must have knowledge and discretion behind them from God's Word. That knowledge ought never to lead us to excess. There has to always be a temperance amongst the saints. Self-control will always require steadfastness and endurance. But while you're enduring, you can't let that endurance to make you cold. You must supplement your endurance with godliness. But godliness cannot turn us into monastics. We must love the brothers. But our love for the saints can never take place or take the place of our love for all men and a desire to see the churches of Christ filled. And Peter says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, if you're a Christian, you'll be doing this. 
You'll be doing these things. And if you're doing these things, you can look at them and say, signs of life. Fruit, 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 fruit. Listen, you cannot do these things apart from the Spirit of God. If you're doing them, God in eternity said, I'll save that one. And He's manifesting that fruit. He's doing it. You have seen the evidence of your calling and election, evidence of God's free and sovereign grace, won for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray that He would give us strength to practice these qualities.